Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Stephanie Kuntz. Professor Kuntz is an award-winning social historian, the Director of Research and Public Education at the Council for Contemporary Families, and teaches history and family studies at the Evergreen College in Olympia, Washington. She has written extensively and is widely recognized as an expert on marriage and family issues. Her book, A Strange Stirring, the Feminine Mystique and American Women at the Dawn of the 1960s, published by Basic Books, is a topic of this show. In a strange stirring, Coons reveals why so many women in the early 1960s found Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, speaking to them personally. Friedan identified an unnamed problem and allowed women to see the self-doubt and depression they suffered is no longer a personal issue but a social one. Kuhn's work is, is both a social history of women at mid-century and a reception history of Ferdinand's book, a book regarded as one of the most influential in the 20th century and a catalyst for the 1960s women's movement. Kuhn's narrative provides a vivid picture of the realities and the contradiction in post-war lives of many women. She also critically examines Ferdinand and responds to the charge that the feminine mystique was too white and middle class. By including minority and working-class women's response to the book, Coons provides a fresh way to understand Ferdinand's legacy. This is not a story only trying to make sense of the past, but how the feminine mystique continues to reproduce itself in contemporary society. Consumerism, the search for meaningful work, and equity between men and women both at home and at work are enduring issues we all continue to contend with. Here's my conversation with Stephanie Coons. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Stephanie Kuntz. Stephanie, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. First, I want to ask you, tell us about yourself, your background, how you came to write this book, A Strange Stirring. Well, maybe the best way to tell you about my own background is to tell you how I came to write this book. I've written several books about the history of family life and marriage, and usually the books have been my idea. But this time, the publisher... um, uh, 
approached me and said, look, we're doing a series of biographies, not of individuals, but of great books. And would you like to do one on the feminine mystique? And my initial reaction was, oh, fabulous. I'd love to go back to this book that I read and that influenced me. And so, yes, I will do it. Uh, I assigned it to my students for the next class. I sent away from my copy. I sat down to read it. And the first paragraph was very familiar, the idea that it was there was this strange stirring in women's lives. After that, it got less familiar. And halfway through the book, I realized not only had I never read it, but I really was kind of bored by it. So that sent me on this huge journey to figure out why I thought I'd read it. The first reason, the first thing I found out was the reason I thought I'd read it was that my mother had read it. This book came out in 19, she read it in 64, it came out in 63. And I was already at the University of California at Berkeley, a young woman who never thought about women's issues, but was very involved in the civil rights movement. You know, I, I somehow vaguely knew there'd been a suffrage movement, but I didn't know anything about women's inequality and didn't take it very seriously. But my mom started calling me. You know, there weren't texts and emails in those days. So we had a weekly call, and she started raving about this book that she loved. It was all about how women had been forced into this housework role and had been made to devalue themselves. She was a homemaker in Salt Lake City at the time. And, you know, I'm rolling my eyes a little bit, but I'm listening. Turns out she loved that book so much and she talked to me so much that later on I actually came to believe I'd read it myself. So the next step in my journey uh, was to figure out why did my mom, why did it mean so much to my mom when it had not it was not meaning so much to me. And that was the real eye-opener that really inspired me in the process of writing this book because I came to see that the things Betty Friedan saying, it shows you how far we've come, seem obvious to us today but were revolutionary to people of the time. So you really could see the disconnect between generations of women, not only your mother but yourself, but now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So tell us, tell me a little bit about the, the main argument of your book, uh, the major historical problems that you're addressing. Well, I think that the most important thing for modern readers to understand is just how radical it is, what she says. Like I write for, uh, I write op-eds a lot and articles, and you never get to choose your own headline. And often, you know, I'll, I'll open a newspaper and I'll see this radical headline, and I'll think, what maniac wrote that? And it turns out that it's what I wrote. Well, this used to happen to Betty Friedan, and I was always amused to find that the very first excerpt from her book that was published in Good Housekeeping, the people assigned a headline to it that obviously they felt would be the most radical, provocative thing you could say. And the headline read, I say women are people too. <laughs> you know? And that, it's, that was a radical thing to say in that generation because this was an era when women were being told that they were totally different than men. That, in fact, there was a well-known um, best-selling psychiatrist who said the worst thing a society can do is to treat its citizens primarily as people rather than as men and as women. And they were trained to have ideas that they had totally different goals in life. What, one thing that uh, strikes me about this book, which I see in other books too, is how we can look at something that in the past seemed very radical at the time, but now we look at it and we think, this is not radical. And trying to get ourselves back into that period, into that mindset, 
and look at it how they looked at it, how women read it, how the press read it. So tell me a little, uh, you start your book talking about the unliberated 1960s, and you kind of describe that really well, but then you, you talk about the Gallup survey uh, in that first chapter, I believe. Mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, talk to us about, about that survey. Uh, well, this was a survey taken just before Friedan published her book, and in it, it purported to show that American women were happier with their roles. They were the happiest people in the world, housewives were, that they loved their, uh, that they loved their role at home, uh, that nothing made them happier than pleasing their husbands. They had quotes from women who said, well, there has to always be a boss. And, you know, a woman who works is kind of ill. And they had all these quotes purporting to show that women in America, housewives in America were totally happy with their role. There was one hidden little fact in it, though, that wasn't highlighted at all. And that was that 90, more than 95% of the women they interviewed told the interviewer that they didn't want their daughters to follow in their footsteps. Now, these weren't feminists yet. They were not saying they wanted their, you know, uh, daughters to go out and have careers, but they just plaintively said over and over again, I wish she waits longer to marry than I did. I hope she gets an education or a little work experience. And that, I think that poll gives you a little insight into the tremendous discontent that women were feeling, but they weren't able to articulate. And in fact, when I started interviewing people who had read the book at the time, they often told me that they felt this strange stirring, this yearning, this discontent, but they thought it was their problem. They thought there's something wrong with me. Connie Ahrens, now one of the, you know, really uh, well-known sociologist and writer, says that she would get up every morning and she'd be doing the dishes and she'd be crying and she'd think to herself, what's wrong with you? You're so selfish. You're going to be punished. Women who are selfish will be punished. Um, you You talk about the contradictions. There's a contradiction here. Uh, in women's lives, between the image and what the reality was. Uh, Unpack that a little bit for us. Well, when we look at the image of women in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, and we look back at it, we think of them, you know, we may sometimes think, well, oh gosh, you know, they didn't have as many options. We may remember that they had to go to the help wanted female section of the, and that, uh, even when somebody like Sandra Day O'Connor graduated second in her class, uh, she couldn't get a job in any law firm except one who said they'd love to have her as a receptionist or secretary. Uh, so we kind of know that, but we really think of women as being idealized then. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, women weren't so stressed then because they had, you know, they had time to take care of their kids. But in fact, that was not true at all. First of all, there were terrible images of women. Right? The same people who would tell you how wonderful housewifery was had this anti-housewife approach. There were some of the most vicious anti-female uh, ideas going around in this time, the Philip Wiley momism idea that, that women were just these awful, tyrannizing people, having been told that they should devote all their energy and attention to husbands and, and children, they were then blamed for only thinking about them and interfering. It was almost as though they wanted women to be like a fly on the wall that served coffee but shut up <laughs> otherwise, and they would get attacked coming and going. Career women were attacked, but housewives were attacked for being smothering and for castrating their children and all of these kinds of things. There was the idea that uh, a woman who wanted more than that was suffering from penis envy. She was sick. Uh, so these women were 
just terribly confused. And they had all sorts of internalized doubts. I mean, actually, when you go back and you look, you find that housewives of the day um, were much less comp- confident about their parenting practices than working women because they were getting all these conflicting messages. So underneath this idealized image that you'll see even now on reruns of Leave it to Beaver and Donna Reed vacuuming the floor in her high heels, there was tremendous discontent and but confusion. And so it's so women tended to turn it on themselves. How much of that confusion remains today? I mean, uh, seems like career women uh, feel guilty. Uh, stay-at-home moms feel guilty. Uh, there's no really, it seems like a, a perennial problem. Well, there, there are a lot of perennial problems associated with it. We're having a lot of trouble making the transition from what was just a united front uh, of Americans that children needed a mom full-time in the home to the idea that maybe women and children, <laughs> as we now find from research, are better off when a woman has some interest outside the home and some, some resources to bring home, not only economic but emotional and educational to their children. Um, but we still, of course, are struggling with this, and I think we've made progress. I think increasingly uh, you see polls that show that women and men both believe that uh, working women can be just as close to their kids as stay-at-home moms. But you're right, we feel guilty, we feel stressed. What we must remember is that our guilt and stress is at least something, it's out in the open, we're discussing it as a social problem, we're not experiencing it only as an internal problem of our own inadequacies. Um, and that's a real difference, I think, and, and shows that, that we have come away since the 50s and early 60s. Well, one of the issues with Betty Friedan, as you know, in scholarship is yeah, you know, accusation that she was privileged, she was white, um, and she didn't represent the majority of women, and that who she was talking about was a very small percentage of women. And uh, it left out black women, working women, uh, lower class women. So uh, how did you respond to that in your book? Well, I had to come to terms with that myself because it was very clear to me uh, as I read the book that she was talking from this white middle class experience of educated women who, who had had an education um, she was talking to a, a bunch of middle-class women who were caught between two worlds. One world was that of their mothers and their grandmothers, where they had been told you can't go to college. And she, women who went to college in the 1920s and 30s were pretty radical because they were saying, um, you know, they were standing up to the idea that an educated woman uh, would be unhappy all of her life. In fact, uh, as early as... <clears throat> In the early 20th century, the idea was that education could make a woman infertile because it directed blood away from the uh, uh, womb to the brain. Uh, so these people were defying it. Um, but now there was a new generation coming in that had been told that it was good. This was the post-war period of expansion, uh, middle-class families, and sometimes working-class families who had been benefited from the GI Bill and the post-war prosperity were able to send their daughters as well as their sons to college. But there was a huge difference. They sent their sons to college to get a good job. 
They sent their daughters to college to get a good husband. So once you got that husband, your MRS degree, it was called, you were supposed to not have any further interest in education except insofar as you used it to please your husband and to educate your child. So this group of women were the ones who were really feeling that. Black women, um, lower working class women who had no choice but to work had a very different set of experiences. So... As it turned out, one of the one of the interesting ironies in the way that Friedan presented herself is she presented herself as just one of these middle class women who had been sent to school, who had bought into the myth, and who then later became unhappy. Actually, she came from a radical working class background herself, and she was a big activist at Smith College. She had organized to unionize the to support in support of the maids unionizing. So she had these progressive politics that she hid in the book because she wanted to reach these people. And I had to struggle with that as as a modern woman who, who had been trained in the civil rights movement myself. Was there, you know, was this dishonest? Was this a good thing to do? Um, I think that she held on to it for too so long, but, but you have to remember that when she finally found it now, she co-wrote the Statement of Principles with Polly Murray, this wonderful African-American lawyer. And I think there was a real role um, that, yes, she was only talking to one section of the population, but it was an in-between section of the population that was so confused because actually the more well-read you were, the more you had been taught that it was not natural to have such an interest in reading or activities or work. Women who attended college in the 1950s were had been taught the scientific findings. There are quote marks along that, as I talked to you, of, of, of Freudian psychiatrists, that any woman who wanted more meaning suffered from psychological maladjustment. Uh, so it's true that Friedan's book tended to have the most emotional resonance for middle-class white women. And But the more I worked on that book, the more I realized you don't have to have a kind of moral hierarchy about who suffers most. There's different kind of suffering for black and working-class women. She did not address that then. She moved on to address it later. But she was addressing a group of women who actually then became some of the leaders of the women's movement, some of the lawyers who helped defend working women and black women from sexual harassment. And these women would have been lost to the movement if she hadn't reached out to them and said, in almost a, in a psychological kind of way, self-help kind of way, I know what you're feeling. It's a legitimate feeling. And you should not blame yourself. You should blame society. And in that sense, she went further than most self-help books do today. <laughs> Well, you have a whole a chapter on African-American women and working class women and their reading of the feminist mystique. Did they read it? Uh, what did they um, think about it? Very few of them did read it. I, I only found a few who read it. And those who did read it um, were themselves educated and felt their own version of the feminine mystique, uh, the feminine mystique, you know. In retrospect, they had criticisms of Friedan for things she said about uh, women who did menial work, housework, that sort of thing. And, of course, in those days, most black women were stuck in menial work if they were not highly educated. But, you know, they told me that at the time they still resonated. It still worked for them. Uh, but actually, when you go back and you look at the history of black women, uh, unlike middle-class white women, it was the most educated women who were the most likely to work in those days. That's now true of white women as well, but it was black women who pioneered in that. They had grown up not just because of necessity, but because of cultural values to believe in, in co-providing, in, in co-breadwinning. And so, in a sense, I came to the conclusion after reading the book and after studying 
learning uh, some of the history of African-American working women, that the big mistake, the big problem with Friedan's neglecting the experience of African-American women was not because they would, as some people have argued, they would have loved to have the problems of middle-class women. They would have loved to stay home. They would have loved to have better jobs than they did, but they did not want to give up their jobs. And so if she had actually looked at their real experiences, she could have use their experiences to point out to white women that it is possible to be a, a, a happy mother, a happy wife, a beloved wife and mother, and still have a career, to still um, to, to have a meaning in life for service to your community or for the kinds of work you do. Now, having said that, I have to admit that if she'd said that to a group of white women <laughs> in the 1950s, probably she wouldn't have been read. You know, that's the dilemma. Well, you know, part of the issue with this is, of course, that if a woman goes out to work and she has children, she more than likely has to have somebody in the home, usually a lower-paid woman, to support her in that. Well, that is a problem in um, many modern career families, but it doesn't have to be a problem. There are all of the countries in Europe, for example, that publicly fund good childcare, not catch-as-you-catch-can childcare in Norway and France and Belgium. Childcare worker is an honored job. It's a well-paid job. You have to be um, trained to do it. And so in those societies, you don't have to rely on low, the low-paid workers. You know, we pay the people who take care of our gardens more than we pay the people who take care of our kids, and whether it's in-home or out-home. And yes, that does lead to many dilemmas and conflicts, but it doesn't have to. If men and women are both given the time to share uh, some work at home. You can't do it all. You can't outsource it all. Uh, and of course, we're finding that one of the interesting um, accomplishments, I think, of the women's movement, ironically, is that men now report feeling more work-family conflict than women do, because they've come to understand, which was one of the big claims of feminism, that being that, that, that caregiving is also important, that yes, everybody needs interests outside the home, women need access to those, but men need access to the joys and uh, benefits of being caregivers at home. But of course, in addition to not having good child care, we currently work in a system that has the worst work family policies in the entire industrial uh, world. And in fact, you know, one of the few things we share with Papua New Guinea and Swaziland is the fact that we don't have guaranteed paid maternity leave for moms. Okay, do you think part of the problem with that is that we uh, uh, value very much the individual sort of taking care of their own business? And Betty Betty Friedan was an individualist in a very stark way. Um, How do you think that works together? Well, I think Betty Friedan had a lot of contradictory ideas about that. On the one hand, and one of the things she really emphasizes in the book, is the very individualistic, um, you know, humanistic psychology position that was that was just developing in the 50s and 60s and flourished a lot in the 70s, that, you know, be all you can be, you know, Mark, you know, just develop your own self, to your own self be true, all of those kinds of things. And so she expresses a lot of her aspirations in that way, that you should pursue your own career, that you should do this. But she also 
understood and you know we can certainly see in the way that she worked with the national organization for women that there were social responsibilities that women should have one of the reasons they should be able to pursue their own talents and nurture their own talents was so that they could give back to society and that society should give back to them so she gradually developed uh, the uh, the notion that we should be working for social support systems uh, for men and women to have a better balance of work and family life. And I think that's an ongoing tension in the women's movement. You have, you know, I sometimes find when people ask me if, femini- if I'm a feminist that I hesitate because you have the power feminists, you have yes. the, you know, the lipstick feminists, you've got all of these different kind of feminists who take it in this, and you even have some who... Uh, are total social conservatives who deny the right to abortion, who deny the right to childcare, and who just say, look, a woman who can make the same sacrifices that a man does and be as ruthless ought to be able to do so, but that we're not going to support any way, uh, any social support systems for women's careers or men's for that matter either. So America is very interesting because we have um, more opportunities, I think, for entrepreneurial women and high, you know, uh, the, you know, the Sheryl Sandbergs, the Marissa Myers, we have the higher, we have a very high proportion of high paid, highly skilled women now who have made it through this individualistic way. But also the gender gap in America is higher than it is in country, many countries like Norway and France that don't have as many career women because we have this huge individualistic idea that we'll all the rewards go to the winners and low-paid jobs, well, the heck with it. We won't even have a floor for them. And since more women are concentrated in low-paid jobs because of our lack of uh, maternity support, uh, then we have a much higher um, gender gap. One thing which, you- which brings me, if I may just say yes, so, yes. to one of the ways that I think um, feminism has to move past some of the ideas of the 60s because we're not just asking for equality with men, we're also now asking for equality for men who are also suffering under this low-wage regime and who also have learned that they do want access to family life. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's great. No. Uh, you say in Chapter 8 you we need to demystify the feminine mystique. What is that about? Well, that mystique, is... What is the mystique of the feminine mystique? <laughs> <laughs> well, the mystique... That's something that, that I was really kind of addressing to academics and feminists and the many, many women who complained to me that uh, you mustn't say these things. You, you mustn't point out that Betty Friedan initially was hostile to lesbianism and was elitist because they, you know, they bought into her as such an important heroine. And I think that, that it's important to see the parts of her that were a heroine. But, you know, I think that you can't build a movement on the basis of idealizing people. We are all human. We all have our flaws. It's important to understand that the feminine mystique, the book itself, had these kind of flaws and that Friedan herself was not totally honest about them. I mean, she really covered up her own history. And even later in the years when, you know, she should have, when people started writing biographies of her and pointing out that she actually had been a radical uh, uh, in the in the 1930s and 40s, she threatened to sue them. She threatened to close off access. She was a, a feisty, 
uh, more than feisty. She could be a very difficult person. And that's all part of the persona. In some ways, the fact that she could be really bitchy was probably the only thing that allowed her to survive the kinds of pressures uh, that you got to be a, a good lady in the 50s. So I devoted a whole chapter to saying, look, let's tell the truth about uh, warts and all. Uh, this was her own history was not how she presented it. Uh, there were many, many parts of her history uh, that were not, and, and the, what she wrote that would not be acceptable to us today. Nevertheless, the conclusion is you can look at those warts. And actually, I think that's better for us as women to understand you don't have to be superwoman to, to make a difference in the world. You can have your own idiosyncrasies, your own flaws, and make your own mistakes. But uh, for Dan, is, look, isn't it generational? Uh, how different scholars will look at her. Uh, younger scholars may be more critical, or African-American scholars may look at her very different from the first wave of, of women's historians who looked at her. Uh, don't you think it's generational how people respond to her book? Well, yes, and that's what I hope to do with my book, is to get past that polarization. There were these two waves. The first wave of people took her completely at their word. She changed their life. People came up to her, and, and people told me 50 years later when I was interviewing her, she saved my life. I flushed my tranquilizers down the toilet. I, you know, I didn't commit suicide, uh, even though I thought of it. And, you know, women were, educated women were loved committing suicide. You know, Ann Parsons is such a good example of that. We can come back to that if you want to. Sure. But the point is that, that there was this whole generation of women who had never been told this in such plain language before, and they idealized her, and the things she did to reach them, which was pretend that she was a white middle-class woman herself and create sort of a mythology of herself, sell herself the way authors normally do today, um, you know, they bought all of it, and they didn't want it to be questioned. Then a younger generation of activists came along, and they reacted against the lies. They reacted against the mistakes. They emphasized those. And what I tried to do, I don't know if I succeeded in my book, but I tried to say, look, we, let's, just, let's thread the needle here. Let's understand that, yes, there were these flaws. There were these limits to her analysis. There were many, many more that I discussed in the book. She left out a lot of important issues, but let's understand what a radical revolutionary thing it was to, to say to this one generation of women, not all women, but a very important one, who moved on to become the leaders and the founders of women's centers and, like I said, getting the kind of education that would help them and inspire them to work with um, working class uh, women. She meant the world to them, and we should respect that. When you're talking about Betty Friedan to audiences now, what in your book specifically, what what is the main message that you're trying to get across? Is it that we need to kind of recuperate Betty Friedan uh, and, and look at her realistically, that she has been too much of a raw woman that we like to beat up on? Well, you know, actually... I tend to go away, move away from Betty Friedan very quickly in my conversations because the main thing I, I want to do is to use the ambivalence that we have toward her today to help younger women and men understand where we've come from in just 50 years. There are lots of problems, and we can talk about that. There are lots of things to be overcome, but 
it is not true that you can't make progress. I mean, it's just stunning. Uh, the world of 1963 might as well be the world of 1663 to most young men and women. They just don't get it that the president of Mills College would advocate the university train women in the theory and preparation of a Basque paella, paella or a well-marinated shish kebab instead of teaching them things like physics and math that wouldn't help them in their degrees. When and women who entered Radcliffe, you know, the, 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 the female correspondent of Harvard, were told that if they uh, got this education, they were going to definitely marry somebody who was educated and a good provider, and they might even be able to marry a Harvard man. Uh, a time when you went to the help-wanted female, and the ads felt free to say things like, you must be really beautiful, uh, you know, and, you know, well-groomed, and, and when the one glamorous job for women was one where they weighed you um, once a week on scales, patted your bottom to make sure you were wearing a girdle, and so that if you got married or had a baby, you had to quit. In fact, when one um, flight attendant was uh, found to have had uh, to be a mom, the airline told her that if she put her kid in the orphanage, she could uh, continue as a, as a flight attendant, but otherwise not. This sort of thing, we have come so far from this. This was a time period... Can I just, just tell you one other? I, I'm getting too excited about this. But in 1964, the same year that she was going into paperback, the American Medical Association, a publication of theirs, had a study of domestic violence. And I remember coming across it when I was researching the book, and I thought, oh, gosh, it has 37 cases. They go through it like a modern sociological or psychological study, and they describe the patterns, that this abuse had been going on for years and often was only discovered when a teenage boy stood up and tried to fight back on behalf of his mother. And so, you know, I'm nodding, I turn the page, and instead of saying the obvious thing, they said, and this intervention disturbed an equilibrium that had been working more or less satisfactorily for the couple. This, they were saying that, that this was, the abuse was good because it reestablished gender roles. People today have to realize how far we've come. When you have uh, students reading The Feminine Mystique, uh, what do you, how do they respond? Are you asking them to read it? And if you are, what are they, how are they responding to the book? Well, with apologies to my mom's uh, generation and how much she adored feminine, uh, the feminine mystique, uh, after my first time of assigning it, I don't usually assign it to the students because there's 350 or more pages that really just keep hammering home something that my students already agree with that women are people too, that they have a right to have a career, that they won't be destroying their kids. But there's one chapter that they still love, and that is the chapter called The Sexual Cell, in which she goes into the way that advertisers use uh, and manipulate our images of ourselves as women to sell products, tell, making us feel insecure about ourselves. Now, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the young men also relate to this now. Just as Barbie ha has become this totally unrealistic uh, doll that no natural woman could possibly um, look like, um, G.I. Joe has got a six-pack that no man could possibly look like. And so both the men and the women are talking about the terrible things that are going on in advertising and that are undercutting some of the progress we've made. For example, you know, back in the 
even in the horrible 50s and 60s, uh, you didn't have this idea that every girl needs to be a pink princess and every boy has to be a blue G.I. Joe. So that's the one chapter that they can relate to. Yeah, because right now it seems to me that uh, with women, it seems like you can be successful and you know get a career and have a career and do all that, but you also have to make sure you're beautiful at the same time. I call it the hottie mystique uh, in my in my book. I say there are there are several mystiques that are left. We've we've overcome the old feminine mystique that women can't do these things. They shouldn't do these things. It's unnatural for them uh, that they're naturally dependent and even masochistic. As psychiatrist said, that's the normal female personality. We've overcome that, but we have other mystiques in their place. And one of them is exactly what I call the hottie mystique: the idea that yes, you can do everything. Boys used to be able to do as long as you are look hot while you're doing it and and seem sexually available. And it's interesting. A colleague of mine in the Council on Contemporary Families, Barbara Rissman, went back and, and studied middle school kids, and they found that the biggest uh, that this was the the biggest change that young women now felt free to aspire to anything. They felt free to be really good at sports in ways that women of the 1950s used to be told to play dumb, to, to catch a man. They used to be told, lose at sports, or else the man will not find you attractive. This is something that's gone from young women's uh, perceptions today. But the one pressure they felt, and much greater than in the 50s, was the pressure to have these, um, you know, to wear these sexy clothes and to be uh, hot. You see that with uh, uh, women who are very accomplished in sports, cele- sports celebrities. Uh, they're quickly made into uh, sexual objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about your your book is a social history for the most part, but it is also reception history. And besides the women who read the books, uh, with, they felt like it applied to them. How was it? Pers- how was the feminine mystique uh, received uh, in the press? You know, in magazines. Uh, how did generally the the culture respond to the book? Well, it made a huge splash. Um, there were, of course, many people who just thought it was uh, terrible, awful, and all sorts of ridicule was attached to it. Um, she was, you know, she was right to to be afraid that if she talked about her past, she'd be accused of being a communist. She was anyway. You know, uh, there was all all this sort of reaction, but there was also this heartfelt reaction uh, from women who had been. Many of them educated women who had been trying to say the same thing but had not caught the wave just perfectly uh, and been able to get such a public uh, reaction. The, the book was endorsed by Pearl Buck, the, the most prominent woman of her generation, I think, the most well-known. Uh, it, was, it was very much pushed by uh, women who... Who were who had made some progress in the 50s and who felt this, and they were very generous uh, in terms of even if they'd written a book that, for example, uh, there were several sociologists whose work she used without really crediting them, uh, and but they were generous about how oh how well that Betty Friedan was explaining these things. Now, when excerpts excerpts were published simultaneously, uh, well within two months. Uh, in Red Book and Ladies Home Journal, which is unheard of today. You, today, if you have a book that is popular, you can only get it, get it in one woman's journal. Uh, and they published huge excerpts. The 
Betty Friedan, part of her part of her misunderstanding of her own history or misrepresentation of it, she kind of had to present herself as a hero, was that, oh, they were all hostile to it. No, the editors of those magazines really wanted to publish it. The readers were hostile, though. I mean, there were plenty of readers who were very happy, and I interviewed a one woman, for example, who had picked it up in a beauty salon. She was having her hair dry, done, curled. She picked this up, and it just absolutely inspired her uh, to go out and read more. But a lot of the women who wrote in were very hostile because they were housewives who saw it as an attack on the sanctity of what they did. So the reception was was mixed, but it was just it came out at just the time when you know she didn't suck this out of her thumb. You know there was discussion going on. The President's Commission on the Status of Women issued its report the same year that her book came out. So there was discussion. She, what I said, caught the wave just perfectly because there was this building discussion of women's place, these debates. Uh, about whether women were ought to be mothers, even the women who were, were even the men who were and women who were telling women to stay home were saying, well, what about after the kids leave? Well, then you can't be a parasite. You know, they were giving all these mixed messages. There were all these debates, and she caught it. She she wrote it. She had the skill to present it in the language of the women's magazines, and she got huge publicity. Was she interviewed extensively at the time? Yes, she was. Now, later on, she um, believed that that her book had been neglected. But the problem is that it came out in the midst of the of the newspaper strike. So it took a while. I mean, it was a massive national newspaper strike. So it looked, it took a while for reviews to appear, uh, and that was a problem for the book. But it didn't stop it from being snapped up by book clubs, turned into paperback, turned into discussion groups. It was by 1965 and 66 and 67, women's colleges were assigning it to every entering freshman, not as a classroom thing, but just as something they had to read. So it had a huge reception. Uh, how much credit would you give for Dan's book to the the web, women's movement of the 1960s? Well, there were many, many sources for the women's movement of the 1960s, right. and that's one of the things. Friedan tended to take a little too much credit for that. Uh, in fact, she tended to take much too much credit for that, that I did this, I did that. Well, you know, there this there had been a suffrage movement, you know, and the movement for the Equal Rights Amendment. And those women didn't just die off or go home. They were working behind the scenes throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And there were African-American women, union women, who were working against sexual harassment and for equal pay. Uh, and there was, so, so you had an older generation, a generation her age, that was working but in different ways. And she the, the, the really came together that, that these women who were working behind the scenes discovered they, they reached out to her because she wasn't already working in politics and could say things more radical than they could say and did already have this platform, so they allied together. So that's one sense in which she was part of a broader movement. And then, of course, there was a new generation of women coming in. Uh, myself, who later thought I'd read The Feminine Mistake, but turned out I hadn't. And we were radicalized in a different way. We we were caught up in the civil rights movement. To me, that long before the women's movement uh, reached my emotions, and I understood 
that, that there were problems with women's position. I was so outraged by uh, segregation, by the things we were seeing on television, um, by the police dogs being used to attack. Um, so we joined the civil rights movement. We joined the anti-war movement. And then, much as women abolitionists had done in the first struggle, we found that we weren't allowed to play an equal role that we were told to take notes or make coffee. Uh, and so we began to say, no, we want to be involved. And in the process, Angela Grimke said this way back in the abolition movement. She said, in the process of trying to free the slaves, we found that we ourselves were shackled. And I think that the civil rights movement women had a very similar experience. And that came not from reading Betty Friedan, but from their own experiences. Was uh, Betty Friedan ever able to really shake off the feminine mystique? Did she want to shake it off? Was there a point where she disavowed parts of it or owned up to it or or not? Well, she was constantly reinventing herself. But, no, the feminine mystique was absolutely critical to her. And... Um, but it did allow her to move beyond it in important ways. For example, when when she was reached out to by these women, she got involved in uh, trying to get, to get the Equal Opportunity, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission came out of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Uh, and, of course, you know, gender had been added as an afterthought, but it passed <laughs> to the surprise of some of the people who thought that maybe it would derail it for blacks as, as well. But it passed for both. And the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was set up. In fact, this year is the um, 50th anniversary of when that uh, organization started to operate. And immediately, people like flight attendants and um, people who wanted jobs said, well, okay, if you're going to outlaw race-segregated ads, uh, only white people need apply, you should outlaw sex-segregated ads. And the chair of the EEOC said, oh, no. I mean, you know, this, this was just a fluke. Uh, that gender was added. We're not going to take that seriously. And you had editorials in the New York Times about how what how crazy it would be. They quoted the idea of this airline saying, well, what, if you do that, what will happen if a gal comes into our office and wants to fly a plane and she's qualified? Oh, my God, you know, this would be like a disaster. Uh, so, the, you know, there was this terrible uh, upsurge against it, and you really had to fight to get the EOC to enforce the new law. And that's when the National Organization uh, for Women was formed. And she was very important in that, although later she tended to forget the fact that when lesbians started to ask for uh, equal rights for women and to be active, she uh, opposed them. She talked about the lavender menace. Uh, You know, she was ashamed of that and kind of uh, her supporters have since denied that and been angry at me and my book for pointing it out. Um, because she did come around later. And, in fact, she co-sponsored the, you know, the, the, the motion in now. So she was a person who moved. Uh, but she tended to not say, I made a mistake, to just move on and pretend she'd always felt that way. Um, later on, she wrote a book uh, about reconciling work and family. And, again, she wrote it, she always tried to write in ways that would appeal to uh, people, what people already believed. And I think there's, there's, a, there's something to be said for that. You should start out where you can agree with people and try to move them to you instead of trying to an- 
radicalize them or alienate them. However, she tended to do that too much. For example, in this book, she basically made it sound as though feminists had been putting their careers first and now it was time to pull back. Uh, I don't think that's true, and that offended many uh, younger women. Uh, so, yes, she had this tendency. I really respect her. I really think that she accomplished a heck of a lot, but she tended, and maybe she had to in order to accomplish so much, she tended to oversell what she'd done and undersell the mistakes she'd made. And I tell you, I still get um, angry letters from people who were her most ardent supporters saying that I shouldn't have talked about these things. Yeah, what, yeah, what is the, the idea about Better for Dan and her book now? You're just, you just mentioned that about uh, the angry letters. Uh, uh, what are they saying? Besides they want to defend her, are there people who think we should just forget about Betty Friedan? Well, you still get, you still get two things. You still get the people who worked with her, who admired her, who she was, could be a extremely generous person. She was an extremely articulate person. She was just feisty as hell, you know, one time when she was getting cut off on a radio, she said, if you don't let, she said in the break to the to the host, if you don't let me speak, I'm going to chant orgasm, orgasm over and over again. I mean, she was a character, and I don't mind, you know, I understand why people who worked with her and adored her get pissed off when you point out some of the weaknesses. So you still get that, but not 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 too much, not widespread. A lot of the people who worked with her are much more balanced in their own assessment, as even though they continue to admire her. Then you still get the um, anti-feminist, uh, really con- social conservative right-wing women who insist upon misrepresenting her or pulling things out of context. But when they say she's radical, it was true. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, but they will say that she hated housewives, you know, and she did. She, had, you know, she wrote this this book, and there were a couple of quotes in it that, you know, that just make you shudder nowadays. You know, she talks about how uh, housework is something that, uh, in many countries, is uh, deemed most suitable for people with low IQs. You know, and it's like, oh, please don't say that. You know, wow. <laughs> so, is there an elitism in in her book? Oh, a lot of elitism in her book, mostly unconscious. Uh, and to her credit, something that she she had originally been in favor of rights for black women and working women. She she worked for unions, uh, radical unions in her youth, and she came back to that. But when she wrote that book, she was kind of thinking herself into she had the, 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 the position of a white middle-class housewife who was angry at the way housewifery was being foisted upon women. And so she responded to it at a gut level with things that definitely sound elitist. But she was aware, because she said she, you, she was an activist before then, so she was aware of other, these other worlds, uh, labor women, black women. It wasn't yes. that she wasn't aware, but in her book, she chose to address a particular audience in some way, she must have felt that the women she was addressing were the key to women's emancipation, that uh, middle-class housewives would have to get on this train if anything was going to happen. 
and particularly educated women who were not yet housewives. I think she was also writing to them to warn them. Uh, but yes, yeah, she was writing to this, this group of women who were so confused at the mixed messages that we talked about earlier and who were internalizing it and who were miserable, really miserable. I mean, I interviewed um, almost 200 women and men who read that book. And, you know, when I talked to them, their pain just leaped out of the interviews. And I, I do some of the quotes, people who said, I was a battered wife, but I thought it was all my fault. You know, people who said, I, I wasn't battered. I, I would keep saying to myself, I was better off than my... There was such confusion because these were people whose parents had been in the Depression or World War II, uh, even some of them, their husbands had fought in World War II, and they would say to me, I had things so much better than my mom did and my grandmother did. And I felt... How are you? How can you be so ungrateful? But I was so unhappy. So Friedan explained to them why they were unhappy and why they weren't crazy to be unhappy, and that was a very important accomplishment, whatever the weaknesses. But again, I think is it not true that these women, in some way, were key to the success of the women's movement? Well, yes. I mean, not on their own, right? Uh, it, you know, as I said earlier, we have to remember that the union activists. African-American women, and later on the graduates of the civil rights movement came in. But this layer of women that she spoke to were the ones, like my mom. My mom, uh, later, she had a difficult marriage. I adored my dad, but he wasn't the best husband in the world. Uh, and so she got a divorce, and after reading Friedan, she had the courage to go through with the divorce. She had the courage to go back to school. She founded the first women's center in Washington State. She taught women's studies. This was a typical trajectory of the unhappily married women who read Friedan and recognized themselves in her. And they are a tremendous intellectual and political and organizational asset to the women's movement. They were then. Some of them continue to be now. So, yes, it was very important. You don't have to um, you don't have to pretend she was a saint and did everything for everyone to recognize that she played a really vital role in, in convincing a cadre of women who would have been lost to the women's movement and maybe even lost to themselves that they had something to offer. Now, we've talked about the women a lot, and I'm wondering about the men. Uh, did you talk about in your book... Uh, how men uh, perceived the book, what they thought about it. Did you interview any men who had read the book at the time? I did interview some men. Uh, and, of course, I didn't get to interview the ones who had reacted really badly, like the one who uh, <laughs> who came next door because his wife had been given uh, lend a copy by, by one of the women that I interviewed and said, don't you ever let your wife bring this book into my home again, you know. <laughs> this was the kind of the atmosphere. But, yes, I interviewed some men who said that they read the book, um, their wife gave them the book, and it made them really understand and change their own attitude. One guy who read the book and then gave it to his wife because she, he said, you know, I think this book is speaking to you, uh, is talking to your issues. Uh, I also talked to men about their own feelings about it. And one of the things I didn't have a chance to pursue in any detail in this book was that, you know, men were also held down by this mystique. In fact, I've come to think that in some ways, the masculine mystique was harder and more difficult to break from, and in fact, we know that it is, uh, than the feminine mystique. Because what happened was the feminine mystique said to women, 
as soon as you get a husband and a couple of children and a house, you will be happy forever. This is going to be the culmination of your life, and you're just going to just be in a golden age ever since. So when a woman was 24 or 25, the average age of marriage for a woman was 20 uh, in 1960, she had achieved everything that she had been told would make her happy and fulfilled forever. And when she wasn't happy and fulfilled, she had a chance if she read someone like Betty Friedan, to say, huh, I can reinvent myself. Now, the poor guy, the masculine equivalent of this was, you go out, you hold down a steady job, you support your wife and family, and when you get your gold watch and your pension, you will enter your golden age and you'll be happy ever after. Well, I had several guys tell me, one, a couple of them crying, that, yeah, they did all it, and when they got their gold watch and their pension, they came home to find they were a stranger mm-hmm. to their wife and children. But then it was too late to reinvent themselves. So in some ways, the masculine mystique, although it did confer undoubted privileges that many men did not want to give up, also came with obligations and burdens that many modern men are just beginning to recognize. That's absolutely true. Um, what about the men who um, were could see that their wives were unhappy? There was probably men who did not like the way their wives' lives were going. They could see it. Uh, did they? What, did you do any work on that? I didn't do a lot. I wasn't able to find a lot of uh, guys uh, who, talk, who who were in that position. But I did talk to several who, um, and I talked to several women about their husbands' reactions. And very frequently, the the husbands would just think there's something wrong. She needs to see a psychiatrist. I don't know if you ever watched the first season of Mad Men, but uh, you know it was one of the most historically accurate shows I've ever seen on television. Um, she it shows her name is Betty Betty Draper uh, having this tingling in her fingers. It was called the housewife syndrome. It happened. People would get depressed. They would cry for no reason. Their hands would go numb, uh, and physicians didn't know what caused it. It was a, but it was a housewife syndrome, and so the typical reaction was send them to a doctor, give them a tranquilizer, and there are scenes in the first six season of Mad Men, where the psychiatrist actually talks to the husband about what's going on with his wife in ways that would just be considered totally unethical today. So but so that happened to many people. Many people told me that that had happened to them. Um, but others, yes, re- really loved their wives. They didn't understand why they were so upset, um, didn't know how to deal with it. And gradually, as couples, they began to um, they began to read the Friedan uh, book, and it helped them. And I did have testimony from many women and a few men. You know, I mentioned that the feminine mystique helped my mother gain the courage to leave her husband, and many women talked to me about that. But you also have to remember, it saved many marriages, and many couples I talked to said, "Yes, this saved my marriage. My husband." read it too, he understood, he began to let me uh, and encourage me to develop this side of myself. So Betty Friedan wasn't just a home wrecker. <laughs> she was a marriage builder too. Yeah, she does get accused of a lot of things that uh, she probably should not be accused of, including increasing the divorce rate. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, well, we know that that the rise of feminism was initially uh, associated with an increase in the divorce rate, both because women 
when they entered work, had the opportunity to leave an already bad marriage. Uh, and that's, I think, the most important uh, thing, is that these marriages were not good, but the women had no options before. But also because in the transition to to work, that women tended to move faster than men did, and there were a lot of conflicts about how do we reorganize the household division of labor. One of the most interesting things is that uh, the divorce rate has been falling for educated women, the women who are most likely to have careers, and I think it's been falling in part because we're getting better at negotiating things. Men have begun to realize that they not only have to, but want to do some of the work at home. So, the very things that destabilized marriage in the early days of feminism are restabilizing it for some sectors of the population today. So what's the takeaway for your reader with this book? What do you want them to take away? I hope that they will understand how what it was like 50 years ago. I hope that they will learn compassion for their own mothers or grandmothers, their mothers, because, you know, social change occurs at different rates for different people. And I still run into women uh, whose mothers, who, who themselves are struggling with the question of, you know, can I, you know, I'm unhappy and I don't know why. I don't run into a lot of women whose mothers struggled with it and whose mothers were not good to them because they were so unhappy. And one of the things that many of my informants told me, one of them said it very well. She said it was like looking at the director's cut of my mother's life and understanding why she did so many of the things that seemed terrible to me at the time. So I would like women to understand how far we've come. I'd like them to understand the courage of their own mothers and grandmothers. And I'd also like us to understand that um, that these social moves, that, that you can't just attribute all the changes to a book like The Feminine Mystique. You must honor it as a reflection of changes that were going on. And I think for, I think for me, it helps... It helps people understand that we can make these changes today if we engage in the same kind of analysis of different problems that we're facing and begin to move beyond just complaining about them. As Betty Friedan, one woman told me that Betty Friedan book was the first self-help book she ever read and the last she ever had to read. And I think that, that the idea that you analyze your personal situation, but you don't just keep buying self-help books, you go out and engage in mutual help is a very important message to take away. Well, Stephanie, you've been very generous with your time, and I have one final question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, one of the things I'm doing, I am continue to research how marriage and family life are changing. Um, but I think one of my big passions now is to help people understand that we have two very important uh, but two very powerful movements going on at the same time. One is, contrary to the idea that the women's movement has stalled, gender equality is continuing to increase. Support for gender equality is continuing to build. Where we see a stall is not because people's desire to have equal relationships is uh, has, has flagged, but because our social institutions and political support systems are standing in the way of it. At the same time, though, we are also facing a real challenge because the gender equality, the personal equality, 
the support for it. You can see it in gay and lesbian marriage, in, in racial uh, attitudes toward interracial marriage, toward women. This is progressing well. But the economic equality revolution has been in some ways reversed. We're seeing increasing economic inequality. And these two things... I described them in a recent New York Times piece as like two tectonic plates grinding against each other as they pull apart, and they're creating very complex new challenges for us, and for men as well as women. The silver lining of it is that now it's not just us women saying, knocking on the door and saying, we want equal rights with what you guys have. Uh, it's women and men saying, we need better social support systems and family support systems. And it's an uphill battle, but it's one we have to fight together. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for this fabulous interview. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.